0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Chapter 28, The Madness of Mr. Crouch. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went up to the Owlery after breakfast on Sunday, to send a letter to Percy, asking, as Sirius had suggested, whether he had seen Mr. Crouch lately. They used Hedwig because it had been so long since she'd had a job. When they watched her fly out of sight through the Ollery window, they proceeded down to the kitchen to give Dobby his new socks. I'm Matt Potts.
1: And I'm Vanessa Soltan.
2: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
1: So Matt, our summer camp... Come Away Magnificent People is coming up. And I just wanted to highlight for some people the kinds of things that we're going to be doing at camp. Casper Terkyle is going to be leading a blessings workshop where he is going to talk about what it means to offer blessings, what it means to receive blessings, what it means to live in conversations with secular blessings. Lauren Sandler is going to teach a how to write and pitch an op-ed workshop. If you feel like writing your opinions for various publications is something you want to learn how to do, Lauren Sandler is going to do a long workshop on that. Ariana Nettleman and I are going to be leading a How to Write a Romance Novel Workshop. We are going to have joyful Sound of Music sing-alongs, s'mores-filled campfires. We are also going to have journaling as a sacred practice, songwriting as a sacred practice. One of my favorite is that Margaret H. Wilson is going to lead a Listen to Music and Cry time together. (laughs) And I'm just like, yes.
2: That sounds so amazing.
1: Right? It's just like a catharsis together time. So anyway, this is just my way of saying there is going to be a lot of amazing stuff at camp. And so you should check it out. It's notsorryworks.com, everyone. And Matt, for our Every Flavor Bean conversation this week, we are going to talk about how Hermione gets hate mail in this chapter and doesn't deserve it. So we are talking about who in our muggle world gets hate and we don't think they deserve it. We think they're great. If you're interested in that conversation, you can hear it at patreon.com slash Harry Potter sacred text.
2: Vanessa, you have a story this week about silence.
1: I do. (laughs) So I feel like I talk about this a lot. It apparently was a really formative moment in my life. I Went home to Los Angeles the summer of 2013. I was doing my clinical pastoral education while I was there. It was my first clinical setting as a chaplain. And so I walked around a hospital carrying Jane Eyre and like not really knowing what I was doing. But one of the things about CPE, as it is known, is that you are part of a cohort and you are all practicing chaplaincy. Early in your careers. So, as a little assigned group, we would get lessons taught to us, right? This is how you do pediatric hospital chaplaincy. This is how you care for people in a chemo wing, this is how you care for people in an emergency department. How do you care for Muslim patients during Ramadan, right? Like, so we would have these just like lessons. But the other thing we would do is present cases to each other. We would write up what they call verbatims and say, this is exactly how I remember this chaplaincy situation going. And you get feedback from the rest of your group of like, oh, this is actually a moment where I think you had a missed opportunity. And I really loved my cohort. We were the beginning of a like bad joke. Because we had a Franciscan monk, a Catholic priest, a Reform rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, and me. And I feel like we didn't all go to a bar, but we should have all gone to a bar, you know? And the Orthodox rabbi who was in our group, he was wrapping up his training. I was at the very beginning of my training. But he was about to become board certified as a chaplain. And he just had this air of, like, not arrogance, just of, like, confidence and calm. And he was just really a lovely presence in our little group. And he told a story for his verbatim when he was presenting a case to us that he went and visited a patient who was Jewish. And, you know, a lot of hospital chaplaincy is you're actually not caring for the patient. You're caring for the patient's family. And so the wife in this situation was the patient and she was asleep and the husband was talking to the rabbi and was like, Rabbi, it's actually like a really terrible situation as to why we're here. And it was was a really bleak, just horrible family situation that had gotten them into an accident which had gotten them here. And so this man tells the rabbi the whole story and the way that the rabbi shared what happened next is that he was racking his brain for Talmud stories, for Torah stories, for anything he could share with this man. And then the man looked at him and said, thank you for not saying anything, Rabbi. There's nothing to say. And it is just a story I think about all the time in terms of silence because he was accidentally silent, right? Like he was just sitting there being like, oh my God, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? All this man needed was, like, space held. And I think that silence is so contextual. Like, silence can be hateful. It can be passive-aggressive. It can be violent. But it can also be spacious and kind and patient. And I think we see both forms of that silence in this chapter.
2: That's a great story, Vanessa. And I have a theory that even though your friend was racking his brain trying to come up with the right thing to say, I still think that it made a difference that he was at the end of his training because I suspect at the beginning of his training, he might have just said something (laughs) like what he had learned in that time of training was like, oh, I'm not going to say a trite thing. I'm not going to just speak to fill the silence, right? And although he experienced that inwardly as turmoil, like, I want the right thing to say, and I'm sure you and I, have, I've certainly in that situation. I'm guessing you have in subsequent situations. Like, you always want to say the right thing. You just learn to not say the wrong thing. And sometimes that's when that space opens up and is experienced by the other as grace, as spacious, as patient. It's a great story and a great lesson also in just sort of how to use silence to, to hold space, to create space and to honor what someone else has said. I mean, right, that's the other part of it is that, I think the story that your friend had heard was still speaking in the room, and he wanted to let its significance play out, right? The etymology of silence actually comes from the word to be still. Mm. The idea of lacking noise didn't develop until like the late 1500s, but the Latin word, you know, comes from Latin. It's ancient, and it just means to be still. And there is something about like thinking about your friend as a chaplain or thinking about chaplaincy in general as just like... In the wake of all this turmoil to just provide a moment to sit with this. I'm going to sit here with you and be still with it. I think that's, yeah, it's what a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Vanessa.
1: Okay, Matt, why don't we remind everybody. <gasps> Matt, we can remind everybody what happens in 30 seconds through silence. Just let everybody think about it.
2: I, I know, I'll, I'm going to invite people into the space. I'm going to hold space for them to remember.
1: On your mark, get set, go.
2: So they go down to the kitchens to get food for for what's his name, and they see the and then Winky's there. Winky's drunk, and they're like, "Winky, it's okay," and but it's not okay. And there's something going on with Crouch. And then, oh, a letter comes, and uh, and it's they're all mad at Hermione, and she gets boils. And then they go and they see Nifflers, and the Nifflers are very cute, and they find gold, but the, the gold disappears, and Ron's sad. And then they go and say, oh, it's going to be like a maze at the thing for the things. And then, they, and then while they're walking back, they see Mister Crouch come out of the woods, and then they go get double door, and they come back, and Crumb is knocked out.
1: Yeah, he is. I had
2: a lot. Of, I had a lot of trouble remembering nouns mm, this time. You know. I re- no, I remember that there were nouns. Sure, sure. I've had trouble remembering specific proper nouns. nouns. Yeah. May I count you in?
1: Yes, please count me in.
2: Okay. Here we go. Three, two, one, go.
1: So Winky is like, Mr. Crouch is not doing well without me. And Hermione gets attacked by letters. And she has these swollen fingers because everybody is worried about Harry. Um, they go and they see the maze. And that's going to be the final task. And Victor Crumb is like, hey, Harry, can you stay behind? Uh, are you dating Hermione? And Harry's like, super no. What? Mr. Crouch, what are you doing here? And Mr. Crouch is really disoriented. They go up to get Dumbledore. Snape is mad. Dumbledore comes down. But Crouch is gone. And Crum is, is stunned.
2: That's great. That's great. One thing I noticed in yours is I discerned real empathy for Hermione.
1: Yeah.
2: And for Winky. You started with a lot of empathy. I like that. Vanessa, one of the things that was really interesting when you were kind of reflecting upon your story is that you noted really astutely that, like, silence can mean a lot of things. Right? Silence, just by virtue of the fact that nothing is spoken, nothing is said, it can carry lots of different meanings. And so one thing we thought we would do is just, you know, think about the different meanings, the different valences that silence carries in the chapter. So do you have a place for us to start?
1: Yeah. I mean, Hermione, right? So Hermione, at the beginning of the chapter, she's ordered the Daily Prophet. And all of these owls start flying in in the morning. And she's like, oh, my Daily Prophet is arriving. I'm tired of learning about everything from the Slytherins. I want my own subscription of information. And then, like, a bunch of owls start arriving just for Hermione. They're not going to other places. And the boys are like, how many Daily Profits did you subscribe to? And she's like, just one. Then it becomes clear that what Hermione is getting is just a ton of hate mail. She is getting hate mail because which Weekly article said that she has betrayed Harry Potter and is now dating Victor Crumb. And people are like, how dare you do that to our beautiful Harry Potter? And it becomes violent, right? Like, one of the letters has undiluted boober tuber pus. And, like, she has this sort of, like, really horrible pus reaction on her hands. And Hermione is just essentially like, don't feed the trolls. Like, we're not responding. People are going to get bored. And she has just decided that the best tactical response to this is silence.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that one of the things we're thinking about or I think we want to think about in this chapter is like silence's relationship to power. You know, silence can be a sign that you are disempowered, right? Like, because you're not allowed to say the thing that you want to say. And I think we'll look at some of those examples in a second. But it can also be a sign of the power you have. Like, I don't need to say anything. I don't feel obligated to address this. Like, that. I think that's the kind of position that Hermione is taking here, which is like, I'm not going to dignify these untruths with a response. I know that these untruths are likely to fade away in people's memory really quickly. And so I'm just going to weather it because I'm strong enough to do that, right? But it's also sad because she is strong enough to weather it, but weathering it means she has to throw all these letters into the fire and deal with the hollers coming in that she can't burn before they start screaming at her. And she has these wounded hands, right? It's not one of those situations where she goes to Madame Pomfrey and she walks out and her hands are all better. Later on in the chapter, after the bowls all come, her hands are heavily bandaged. She has trouble eating because her hands are heavily bandaged. Whatever treatment in the wizarding world they have for bubo tuber exposure is not a quick solution and she's still suffering from it can i just also say here i'm really disappointed in molly
1: in this uh, chapter yeah because
2: we love molly molly is a great character a very loving very caring well respected among our <laughs> listenership and among the hosts the co-hosts <laughs> of this podcast that she would be persuaded by this witch weekly article when she knows hermione so well that she would Send like a smaller Easter egg or whatever. A little disappointing. There are other situations or examples of like silence as lending power to others or as empowerment in this chapter, as you heard really clearly in our thirty-second recaps. At the end of this chapter, Mister Crouch comes out of the Forbidden Forest while Crum is kind of confronting Harry about his potential relationship with with Hermione. And Mr. Crumb is, you know, he's he's obviously experiencing some mental distress. Harry and Crumb both feel like he needs some care and help because Harry knows where Dumbledore's office is. He says, tells Crumb, you wait here and I will go to the office because I think I can get there more quickly and get help more quickly. And he does. And the encounter he has at Dumbledore's office is where we see another example of kind of silence as empowerment.
1: Yeah, I don't know why this moment really touched me in the book. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the chapter. So Professor Harry said, sidestepping Snape before Snape could speak, Mr. Crouch is here. He's down in the forest. He wants to speak to you. Harry expected Dumbledore to ask questions, but to his relief, Dumbledore did nothing of the sort. Lead the way, he said promptly, and he swept off along the corridor behind Harry. There's just something about, like, you technically have less power than I do, Harry. But I will follow you. Like, you lead the way. I'm going to stay silent. I'm new in this situation. You are actually the person who knows this that I find so beautiful. And it reminds me, I don't know why I love this line so much, but in Romeo and Juliet, right before Mercutio and Tybalt have their fatal brawl, Mercutio is leaving and Romeo says to him, I will follow you. And it's the ways that we promise to follow each other in a kind of silence I I just find a very beautiful promise of, like, I'll be right behind you.
2: Yeah. One of the gifts of literature is that, like, we can read and learn that others experience the world differently than us, right? And the reading of literature is what allows us to just listen, to listen to the authority of others when they speak about their own experience, right? I think what's really dramatic in this scene is the difference between Snape's and Dumbledore's reactions. It's one we can predict because we know that Dumbledore likes Harry and we know that Snape doesn't like Harry. But to your point, Snape and Dumbledore are both right now alert to the rise of Voldemort. We know like from further reading later on that they both are cautious. They both know something's going on. They both have suspicions about what's going on at the school. If a student runs in to Snape, who is on the inside of some of these suspicions, and says to him, Mr. Crouch has showed up half-dressed and speaking incoherently, and he seems like he's in danger— Like, Snape should be like, lead the way. Mm -hmm. But he's so sure that he knows what's going on and that Harry doesn't, that he dismisses him and ignores him and stifles him, like, is an impediment to him. Luckily, Dumbledore shows up. And Dumbledore, who has the same worries, hears Harry say, (laughs) Mr. Crouch is in danger. And he's like, okay, let's go. Because I I suspected something like this might happen. I don't know what's going on. I need to follow you. And he shuts up and goes instead of telling Harry he doesn't know what he's actually talking about, which is what Snape does, right?
1: Yeah. And I'm just thinking about like the way that often people with less structural power actually know more than people with more power. Mm And the more power you have, the more distanced you get from that sometimes, right? Like, I'm just thinking about, like, nurses know more about patient care than doctors. They certainly know more more about patient care than the chief medical officer who was a doctor 20 years ago but is now an administrator. You know, and even, like, high school teachers often know more about pedagogy than professors at top universities, right? Like, the more power you have, often the less, like, actual, practical information you have. Hmm. And you have other really important information. You have information about budgets and, like, what the reality is of, like, why we can't open that other wing or, you know, more expertise on a specific subject because you're able to not focus on pedagogy, but really go deep. But I love that Dumbledore is modeling silence in this moment of, like, actually the child knows more here. Yeah. And, like, that to me is the key. It's like we need all sorts of people in all sorts of different spaces. But part of that is knowing when you should be the silent one. And I think that often people with more information but less power feel as though they should be the silent one or are treated as if they should be the silent one more often. And people with more power think, oh, it's never appropriate for me to be the silent one. And Dumbledore just nails it in this moment.
2: Yep. This example is a really great transition to another form that silence can take and does take in this chapter, which is not silence as empowerment, but silence as the opposite of empowerment. Silence as oppression or marginalization. I mean, we see Snape doing this in this moment. He says the headmaster is busy, Potter. Like, obviously, we don't want to hear what you have to say. You be silent. Stop talking. Right. Like that's stifling that knowledge. It's trying to put him in his place. It's an oppressive action. And then we also see it when Dumbledore follows and we see Crumb stunned. Right. And like that act of violence Is an act of silence also because Crumb cannot say what happened, right? Crumb doesn't know who did what or what happened or where Mr. Crouch is gone. He has suspicions, right? He, about what happened to him, but he can't actually say, and that's a form of silencing. That's a form of like making someone unable to speak their truth, say what happened to them.
1: Yeah. And we see that, you know, with Winky too, right? Winky was like summarily fired because she had a wand in her hand, but nobody asked her what happened. And it doesn't even seem as though Dumbledore, who took her in and gave her shelter, asked what happened. And so Winky is like sitting in the basement. You know, we find out she's pining and drinking more than is like strictly healthy for her.
2: That scene in the kitchen is really complicated, right? I mean, morally, like thinking about who should be speaking, who has the right to speak, right? Because Harry is like trying to ask Winky, what's going on with Mr. Crouch? Like she, she's finally getting asked the question. You said that she deserves to be asked. Harry's asking it, what's going on with Mr. Crouch? And she's like, nope, it's not, it's not your story to hear. It's, I, I get to decide who I tell that story to and I'm not telling it to you, right? And so you both want to preserve her agency to tell her story to who she wants to tell it to. And on the other hand, you're like, We need to know. (laughs) We want to know. It would be good for us to know. And you can see the same dynamic with Hermione, who's like, is standing up for the elves and saying, you should be advocating for wages. You should be advocating for these things. And Dobby is like, please stop talking. Please go away. (laughs) You're not making things better because you're speaking for us and saying things we don't want you to say. On the other hand, we are sympathetic to Hermione because we don't like the injustice of, of how elves are treated. So, like, this is where, like, the silence as oppression and silence as empowerment kind of binary, it gets very, very complicated because speaking for someone who chooses to be silent, even on their behalf, can be a kind of silencing. And it's not clear whether that's empowerment or oppression when one does that. And in many cases, when we believe it's empowerment, it's actually oppression. And that's the thing to be wary of.
1: Yeah. You know, and something else I know that you and I have both thought a lot about is that silence is this gift often, but silence also means that you're defaulting to the people in power, right? Like not having an opinion is the same as maintaining the status quo, is having an opinion for maintaining the status quo. So Ron and Harry are silent about house elves, which just like makes them part of the oppression. Hermione is speaking up, so she's part of the resistance. She's just also oppressing while resisting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It gets murky.
2: It does. And I. it's interesting to see a character we admire as much as Hermione, like in the middle of that and just learning... How complicated it is in figuring out how to try to navigate it in a chapter like this.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about pedagogy of the oppressed, right? That like one -hmm. of the most important ways to not engage in silence as complicity is just to listen because that's not silence, right? That's asking a question and creating space that's quiet. It's not the same as silence. And Matt, you know, I'm just thinking you and I were having this conversation last night about The letter from the Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King. Right. That the biggest threat to the civil rights movement is the white moderate. And that's how I often think of silence. Right. Mm -hmm. People who are like too polite. I don't want to take sides. You know, I don't I don't want to. Oh, it's none of my business. And I'm just like, your silence is actually an endorsement. But then we see Hermione modeling the like downside of like, no, screw that. I'm not going to be silent because I don't want to endorse it. It's still really hard to do. Yeah. But I still think it's better to try. (laughs) So,
3: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint
2: Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation,
3: we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com. acast
2: Kind of form of silence we want to think about, which is silence as secrecy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what's interesting about silence as secrecy is it can function either as oppression or as empowerment. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that there's the culture of house elves, and I'm going to be a little bit like Hermione and speak for them. Right. Is that they keep the secrets to their masters. Right. And it we can see in this chapter how that secrecy disempowers house elves and also protects the power of wizards. Like if Winky felt free to tell the story of the Crouch family to others people at the school would know what was going on in time to maybe save some folks a lot of suffering. Whereas at the end of the chapter, when Dumbledore sends Harry back to the common room with Hagrid, he looks at him and says, you know, go straight to the common room and stay there. And by the way, if you feel like sending an owl, don't send an owl. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is kind of like, I'm going to let you have your secret. It's okay for you to have your secret. What we learn in that moment is that Dumbledore knows some of Harry's secrets, but is allowing him to have them is allowing him to right and that's a different relationship to to secrecy a different relationship to allowing others to carry their secrets and protect their own information
1: yeah right like at a certain point it's right to privacy hmm. it just again it gets really thorny because you want people to have their privacy but you know hagrid had his secret about being a half-giant for so long yeah. that shame was really attached to it. And at the end of this chapter, we hear him saying some really out-of-character things, right? He yeah. is complaining to Harry about Madame Maxime and is warning Harry that Harry should not have been with Victor Crumb and is just saying really xenophobic things. Yeah, And like part of that was because of his secrecy and shame and... So it's when to talk, when not to talk, what to air out, when to be like, oh, it is actually strategic for me to not see this thing. Like, I don't need to tell this person I don't like their outfit. (laughs) Right? Like, that's a secret. It's the same
2: T-shirt I wear every week, (laughs) Vanessa.
1: What is respecting someone's privacy versus allowing someone to self-destruct and shame?
2: Yeah. I mean, it points back to the former dilemma, like when do you speak for others and when do you give them the opportunity to speak for themselves?
1: Yeah. So, Matt, we're now doing parties, the Jewish four-step sacred reading practice, and I picked a sentence for us. So the sentence that I picked is, the rest of the class was very eager to leave. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. So step one is shot the intended meaning of the sentence. So what's happening, right, is that, you know, in Defense Against the Dark Arts, Barty Crotch Jr. slash Moody is teaching them how to deflect hexes, but is really throwing them in it And the kids are really excited to leave because they are getting hurt while practicing this.
2: Yeah, things have shifted a little bit since the early lessons. I mean, I think there was, well, not really. I think they were excited about sort of the exposure to these unforgivable curses at the beginning. Well, not universally, right? Like the torture of the spider, like some people really did not take to that very well. No. But clearly Moody's pedagogy has not changed. Moody is glad to expose his students to unsafe things.
1: Yeah. And the Barty Crouch Jr., why would he want to do this? Why would he want to teach kids how to deflect hexes is still confusing to me.
2: Don't you think he's just cruel? Like he's just, he's maybe giving them decent defenses against hexes, but not good ones. So a lot of them get through and they get hurt. Right? Like he's teaching them like B minus hex deflection. And then they're just getting hurt a lot. And so he's, he's, because he's he's cruel, he thinks that's entertaining.
1: So he's just hexing them.
2: He's just hexing them.
1: And he's like, deflect it. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, that is probably what's going on. I I do find that compelling. We do know that like sadism is often found in schools. It shouldn't be, but it often is. Well, step two is remez where we pick a word and we trace it throughout the book. So Matt, I'll read the sentence again and you get to pick a word. Okay. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries.
2: The one that jumped out at me was rigorous, but that doesn't Mm. seem like one we can take throughout the series, is it? Yeah, sure. Or do we trust the process? Do we trust the sacred reading process? process?
1: Let's trust the process. All right.
2: Trust the process. Then I choose rigorous.
1: Rigorous makes me think of McGonagall. I feel like she's the most rigorous teacher. (laughs) Good old McGonagall. Rigorous makes me think of the twins and how they're opening their company. Like it's ridiculous, some of the things they do, but they do test every product on themselves and then on first years and that right. Like
2: that's true. They yeah. are
1: actually working on this in a rigorous way.
2: Uh, rigorous makes me think of Dumbledore's Army in the fifth book because I feel like they they're self pedagogic They have to self-teach, but they're they're rigor spotted. Like they take it so seriously, and they want to make sure that they do this really rigorously that they prepare really completely and exhaustively and intensely
1: what we're hearing is that often someone is rigorous in leadership on the behalf of others sometimes it's self-rigor right like fred and george are Mm self-motivated in their rigor but like oliver wood McGonagall, they're like you shall be rigorous
2: yeah like it's it's coaxing someone or escorting them into an intensity they might not take themselves into, right? Right. But to to, to their benefit.
1: Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. I think most of the time. Yeah. I feel like sometimes you pay someone to be rigorous to you, yeah. right? like personal
2: trainers or whatever. Right. Yep. Yep.
1: I don't have a personal trainer, but I would love one. And basically, yeah. I just want them to push me, right? Because I'm not going to push myself.
2: Yeah, a little harder than you push yourself. And I think a good teacher does do that, right? It right. doesn't make you feel unsafe like the way Moody does.
1: Right. But
2: it gets you to a place where you didn't think you could go and for that reason, maybe never tried to go.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that it's rigorous because I would say Moody had given them such an abusive test of hex deflection yeah. that many of them were nursing yeah. small injuries. So step three is Drash, where we wonder if this was the lesson that we were preaching, what lesson we would want people to hear. And so I'll read it again. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. What this is making me think of is that if you're going to be rigorous on someone else's behalf, you have to be really thoughtful about how, because if Madam Pomfrey was in the room or even just consulted, right? Like, hey, we're going to do some risky things. So we have a nurse here. Hmm. I'm only going to do hexes that she can cure. (laughs) So if you get twitchy ears, it's fine. She'll untwitch them for you. I think that, right? Like that's the thing about a personal trainer, right? Is like, the safety precaution that they're bringing is their knowledge. So you're not going to hurt yourself in theory because they are going to be like, no, 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 don't bend your back like that or whatever it is. And this doesn't seem to be rigorous. This seems to be reckless. Yeah. And so I would say if if you're going to be anything on someone else's behalf, you just have to, you have a responsibility for caretaking.
2: Yeah. I think it's a great sermon. Like, it really explores that distinction between abuse and rigor, right? And pushing someone beyond where they think they can go, but not beyond where they ought to go. Yeah. Right? I mean, building off of your sermon, I think I might preach about trust, right? The power of trust. Mm-hmm. Like, when someone has your trust, you actually can push them beyond where they think they can go. But that com- it is a huge responsibility. Because if they trust you, they like, these students trust Moody. They think he's an or which is not, right? Like, I mean, the real Moody is, but they don't know it's Barty Crouch Jr. They think that he has their best interests at heart. And so they're willing to nurse these small injuries for the sake of the teaching, the instruction he's giving them. Yeah, I think I would do a version of your sermon, but maybe lean into the, like, the responsibilities of trust, the power of trust, power to liberate, but also power to cause harm.
1: Yeah, trust is just such a responsibility.
2: Also just a, because we think of trust as like a good thing. Trust is good, but mm-hmm. trust is a neutral thing. Actually, and it can cause harm as well as good.
1: Yep. So, step four is sewed, which means secret. And we're going to see if a secret has been shaken loose for us through this conversation. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. This is like the miniest of secrets, but he's giving them a test of hex deflection without us getting any hint that he has taught them hex deflection, which I think it's yeah. to your point that, like, this is po- potentially just sadistic of like, here, we're going to test how good you are at this. And you just like start shucking a ball at a kid being like, well, are you good at catching? And like, it's a rigorous <laughs> test. But like, yeah. I we are under no impression that they've actually been prepared for this test.
2: You know, I think my this is the first time I actually felt like a so came to me really quickly. For some reason, when you read it this time, I started thinking about the word deflection and the fact that these hexes are deflected, not erased, or right? Like the hexes don't leave the world. They just go a different direction. And there is something, maybe this is my sermon or maybe it's my soa, but there is something about like thinking about harm harm that's really directed, even if we can deflect it, it can often go other places. Even if we deflect it successfully from ourselves, it often can hit other people. Like, I wonder if what's going on in this room. The reason why many of them are nursing small injuries is because I successfully deflected a hex, which then hit somebody else, right? Who wasn't paying attention, right? I, I imagine like these ricocheting hexes all over this room because they're not actually being like canceled out or suppressed. They're bouncing off everything else, which is the a dangerous environment. But also when you think about how harm operates in the world and in relationships, in families, in other kinds of social systems, harm often, even when it's deflected, does bounce off and hit other people. Uh, and so it's, yeah. it might be a, like a way to pay attention to the directions and trajectories of harm, the sometimes unpredictable ones when we're trying to protect ourselves.
1: Oh, that's so sad. That <laughs> strikes me as like yeah. wise. Yeah, they're accidentally hurting each other yeah well thank you so much for doing this lovely parties with me
2: thank you vanessa
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change
1: your water game and it's good for you i am so excited to tell you that what matters our 2024 2025 season registration is now open If you don't know, What Matters is a 28-week class that we think of as our version of Divinity School. Having gone to Divinity School, I was like, everyone should get to do this. Everyone should get to have a dedicated season to thinking about what matters to them and how they can live up to their values. And we have tried to condense that experience into half a year while still making it spacious enough that there's time, but also not making you quit your job and go to school for three years. It's facilitated by me, my friends, Mauricio Bruce and Michaela Bly. Mauricio is a brilliant chaplain and therapist. Michaela is a Grand Slam winning storyteller. The program is divided into three units, each focused on a different novel, You also get one-on-one chaplaincy time. You get small group time. It's an incredibly special small class. Our next cohort begins August 21st and will run through March 12th. Payment plans are available. Go to notsorryworks.com to reserve your spot today. This week's voicemail is from Sully, and just a trigger warning, Sully is going to talk about addiction in their voicemail, and so if that is something you would rather skip, just fast forward about three minutes.
3: Hi, Ariana, Matt, Vanessa, and the Sagratex team. My name is Sully, and I'm finally caught up with your podcast, and it's been such a light throughout the pandemic. Over the past few years, I've been watching the person dearest to me in the world struggle with a debilitating alcohol addiction. It's been the most painful experience of my life, and there truly aren't words to describe what it's like to those who haven't experienced it themselves. Revisiting Goblet of Fire through the podcast, my experience led me to read Dobby and Winky's story and their relationship differently than I have before. Winky struggles with substance abuse and is shamed and isolated from her community And Davi is trying to support her in the best way he knows how. So I'd like to offer a three-part blessing. I know that's a lot, but I learned from the podcast that blessings are an unlimited resource. First, I want to bless Winky and all those struggling with substance abuse, that you may remember that you are more than your addiction, that you were people or house elves before you were addicts, and that you are worthy of something better than this. Second, I want to bless Dobby and people who love someone struggling with substance abuse, that you may find peace in the knowledge that this isn't your fault and that you're doing the best that you can and that you remember to take care of yourself as well. Thirdly, I want to bless Dumbledore and all those who would look at a person who's struggling and offer them a job, a place to stay, a second chance, for all his flaws, Dumbledore is great at radical acceptance, and it's really beautiful. Thank you so much for the podcast. It brings me so much joy and peace.
1: Philly, thank you so much for that really beautiful voicemail. I'm, I'm really sorry for the struggle that you are in the middle of, and I found your blessing really just gracious and encompassing and wise. And I especially think you're exactly right about Dumbledore. I get frustrated with Dumbledore sometimes that he uses the school primarily as other things. And some of those second and third uses, like a safe house for spies who are abused to children, I find troubling. But this second use of Hogwarts as a safe space for people who don't have somewhere else to go is a beautiful second use of Hogwarts. And I think a correct one. So just thank you for this great voicemail and blessing.
2: Yeah, thank you, Sally. It was a really, really beautiful voicemail. And I'm, I'm sorry for you and for your friend. And I extend the same blessings to you that you've extended to all of us. I have to be honest, when I read the representation of Winky, it kind of bothered me in this chapter because it seemed to be played for comedic effect. But if the result of it is this lovely blessing, then for that, I can be thankful. Now's the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Justin Beefy Beeger, 33, a brother, funkle, and someone who brought humor and wit to every situation. Jean, 89, a matriarch, angler, lover of birds, and feeder of squirrels. Michael Suvac, a girl dad, stats whiz, and jokester. Norma De Los Reyes, 80, a fairy grandmother, a devoted cat lady, and a crafter extraordinaire. Nelson Stone, 90, a gentle, hard-working family man. Hans Peter, better known as Dio, 57, a father, forest lover, great friend, and one of the original members of the Crazy Boys. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week?
1: Matt, I want to bless Hermione, who... I think similarly to Winky's, like, hiccups, Hermione's attack is played for a kind of laugh. It's, like, funny that she's getting howlers, and she's very lighthearted about it, but she's a victim of a real kind of attack here. And I feel like I've been really hard on Hermione in the last several years for what she is about to do to Rita Skeeter. But remembering how violent this is, I still think what Hermione does to Rita Skeeter is horrible. I have much more compassion for her hatred of Rita Skeeter. You know, she Rita Skeeter has made Hogwarts unsafe for her and has made the mail unsafe for her. And that's horrible. So it's a blessing for Hermione. I cannot believe she's having to go through this at 14. And I think social media makes all of this more possible for people at 14 where you're Getting cyberbullied or called out for things, right? Like, as horrible as what Hermione is being put through is, I actually don't think it's an extreme representation of the kind of thing that happens to teenagers. So a blessing for Hermione and for anybody who has gone through something like this or is going through something like this. Yeah, you have a righteous anger. What about you, Matt?
2: Yeah, I'm going to bless Ron this week. Uh, We learn this week that leprechaun gold disappears after a short (laughs) amount of time. And I think Ron feels very proud that he could pay Harry for the omnioculars. And he realizes that he actually didn't and that Harry never even noticed. And Ron hates being poor. And he says, I think, I mean, he sums it up pretty well. He just says, it's rubbish. It's rubbish being poor. And I just, blessings for Ron because I hear him and it's hard. And he deserves to be blessed.
1: Being poor is rubbish. It is rubbish. And I love that it's like represented in the novel, not just as rubbish because you can't always get the things that you want and need, but it's just like emotionally yeah. rubbish, right? Like yeah. feeling indebted to other people. and
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing that's taken away from him is the experience yeah. of not feeling indebted to Harry. Like he could do something cool for Harry. It's not even not having enough stuff. It's not even having the pleasure of being able to give something to someone else.
1: Yep. Right? It's just feeling even. Well, next week we're reading Book 4, Chapter 29, The Dream, through the theme of intention.
2: Great. Well, I intend to tell a great story.
1: I have all the faith in the world that your intentions will be met. We have a couple of announcements before we give our thanks. We hope to see you at summer camp. We have a Harry Potter pilgrimage that we are running, an Emily Dickinson pilgrimage. We are running a Mary Oliver pilgrimage that we are running, a Taylor Swift class that we are running. We are running all sorts of things. You can find out about all of it at notsorryworks.com.
2: This has been a Not Sorry Production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gumpankum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast.
1: We'd like to thank Sully for their voicemail this week. Welcome back to Lara Glass, back from parental leave. We missed you. We love you. woo Thanks, as always, also to Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Turk, Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones.
2: I have a theory that even though. Hold on a second. What was I about to say? I have a theory that... Oh.